Now hear God's holy word from Psalm 109. We are at a good stopping place in our study of Luke's gospel. And so I want to take the next few weeks leading up to Advent to cover a few different topics. So today we want to look at Psalm 109. And I want to pick up somewhere in the middle where David is talking about what he wants God to do to his uh, oppressor and his accuser. And this is what David prays. He says, set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit today so that we can understand how we are to pray, especially pray on behalf of the oppressed and persecuted church, and how we are to pray ourselves when we're wrongfully accused or when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Help us to know how to receive and sing and pray like David did using, using David's words. So, Father, guide us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, you've probably heard that a southern gentleman will be polite to you right up until the moment he kills you. He'll be nice and he'll be gentlemanly right until the time, you know, he pulls the trigger. In other words, in the South, we have this desire to make nice, to be nice and to get along. We really do want to get along right up until the point where we can't anymore. And that's when the ugly comes out. We have so many ways of concealing our true feelings and of avoiding conflict. Everybody jokes about how uh, when uh, we'll say something mean and then we'll sanitize it with, you know, bless their heart. But there's another line that I grew up hearing in the South that may be worse than that. You could always tell that when somebody started a sentence with the phrase, I don't mean to be ugly, but they're about to be ugly right? You know, the next thing is going to be ugly, but we have a way of showering someone with politeness and niceties, and at the same time shoving a surgically articulated needle of, of offense between their ribs in such a way that they don't even know that they've been offended until two weeks later, right? We'd be so sickly sweet. And even if you weren't raised in the South, I bet you were probably warmed by your mother at some point. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. But, but our mouths can be full of saccharine flattery and full of false praise and blessing, while our hearts are full of bitterness and anger and jealousy and hatred. And, and, and at the other, uh, other times when we need to be bold and courageous and point out that something is in fact a horrendous sin and needs to stop immediately when it's time to say 
cut it out, knock it off. We can be avoiders of conflict. We quail at the thought of upsetting the status quo. And we do that for fear of being perceived as ugly or being perceived as being impolite. We don't say what ought to be said. So when it comes to the language of the Psalms, there is a reason why Christians and churches, particularly Christians and churches in the South, get squeamish and nervous. Can we really say that? Are we allowed to pray the way that David prayed? Can we sing these Psalms? Is it ever righteous to pray that our enemies would be judged and be cursed? In what circumstances ought we to pray imprecatory prayers? That's the category uh, that we group these psalms into. We label these the imprecatory psalms. These are the psalms which level uh, uh, judgments and curses against God's enemies. Well, one place that we could sort all of this out is in Psalm 109. One commentator says that this is one of the most relentlessly harsh psalms in the entire Psalter, where David calls on the Lord to destroy his enemies in the most horrible ways. Now, what, did, what does David call for God to do in, uh, to his enemy in this psalm? Well, he calls on Yahweh to judge his enemy, to cut his life off early, to leave his children fatherless and his wife a widow, to send debt collectors to repossess everything he has and to leave him without a friend or ally until even his prayer is a sin. And David doesn't even say, bless his heart at any point in the psalm. He doesn't start it with, I don't mean to be ugly, but he, he doesn't sanitize this in any way. There are 30 anathemas pronounced by David in this one psalm. And we know that this psalm doesn't stand alone. This is not the only psalm in the entire Psalter that, that kind of, it, it doesn't stand in contrast so that the rest of the Psalter's sort of flowery and all of this uh, light uh, imagery and this one, uh, this one psalm is kind of this dark brooding tower of anger. <laughs> no, uh, th- there, are, there are other psalms and other places like Psalm 139 where David says this, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, for they speak against you wickedly. Do I not hate them, O Yahweh, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. That's Psalm 139. And it's not only David, and it's not only the Psalms that speak this way. Moses, in Numbers 12, was called the most humble man on the face of the earth. And back in Numbers 10, here's what what Moses prays. Rise up, O Yahweh, let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. The prophet Jeremiah sounds a lot like David in Psalm 109. When Jeremiah cries out to the Lord, he says, They have dug a pit for my life. Therefore, deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death. Their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. But let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. That's rough. But this language isn't only in the Psalms. It's not only 
used by David. It's not only in the New Testament. In fact, it's not only heard on earth. You may think this is only the language of people who are presently suffering and they really don't know what they're saying. But if you fast forward to the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, the spirits of the martyrs under the throne of God say this. They say, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, you see that this language is not confined to one small dark part of the Bible. This language is throughout God's holy word. Yet, even in light of this language throughout the scriptures, we might still question, is it proper for Christians who have been commanded to speak blessing and not curses, who have been taught by Jesus himself to love our enemies, whether we ought to ever pray prayers like Psalm 109? And one commentator says this. I want to read a couple of critics of using and singing this kinds of, of, of music and, and these prayers in the Bible. One, one critic, one commentator says, This psalm contains utterly repulsive maledictions inspired by the wildest form of vengeance, which makes this one of the most questionable hymns of cursing. And he goes on to say that this psalm exhibits such carnal passion that it is utterly inexcusable. Of course, you can only say things like that if you take first a position of authority over God's word rather than submitting yourself to the authority of God's word. You see, where, where do we begin to be able to make criticisms like that? It, it comes with our, our, we have to start with a certain orientation towards God's word and, and put ourselves as critics over it rather than students of it in submission to it. There are others who say we shouldn't use any psalms in Christian worship, and they point to this psalm as one of the reasons why. Say, how can you sing that? What will visitors think if you pray that? Because, you know, everything we do has to be for visitors who may or may not ever come, but we have to worry about what they say or think. So, so how, how can we do that? How can we pray this? Here's another critic. He says, we question the worth for Christian worship of such psalms as they express a spirit of vindictiveness. Christianity is meekness, gentleness, peace. Even the wicked should be regarded as objects of redemptive search. Jesus spoke of forgiveness even upon those who dealt his death. As long as we retain in Christian worship material which breathes a spirit of aggression, self-assertion, and vengeance, we are contradicting our faith. I'm still quoting here. Uh, We cannot hope thus to make our doctrine clear to the world with such contradictory elements in our worship. We shall not be surprised that the spread of Christianity is slow. We may well wonder that it propagates it at all. Well, I wasn't aware that the use of the Psalter was so widespread through the church that its use is a reason for the slow growth of the church, right? Our our church is really using these things and, and that therefore we can point to the fact that this is, you see, this is why the growth of the church is slow because we do this. No, in fact, uh, we don't use the Psalms uh, in the church, uh, in the broader evangelical world. So, so what do we make of this embarrassment that some Christians have regarding passages like Psalm 109 and the passage from Jeremiah that I read and other places? How do we answer their concerns when we know, in fact, Jesus commanded us to bless those 
who curse us. Well, here's where we start. We've got to start with the basics. And first and foremost, the, the first principle is that you are commanded by God's Holy Spirit, speaking through inspired men, you are commanded to sing the Psalms. God tells us in Ephesians 5, in Colossians 3, in James uh, 5, sing the Psalms. Not some of them, not just the ones we like, but to sing the Psalms, all of them. Now, build upon that. We also know that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable. There are no parts of the Bible that are there to embarrass you. It's all good for us. And on top of that, when these Psalms were originally composed, they were, they were collected and, and composed and preserved for use in public worship. So even the imprecatory psalms were not passionate pleas of one man, nor were they this, this irrational outburst from one kind of carnal, wicked, bitter man that somehow snuck itself into the canon. No, the psalms were given as a pattern of worship for the whole assembly of Israel. All of Israel was to come together and to sing all of the psalms, even Psalm 109 and 139. And not to think that they were too good or too holy or too compassionate or too merciful to sing it. In fact, to say that, to say, I'm too, I'm too compassionate to sing it. Well, what are you saying? You're saying I'm more compassionate than God? I, I'm, I'm too holy. I'm too merciful to sing that. Well, are you more merciful than God? That's what you're saying. These are God's words, right? So Psalm 109 is spirit breathed. The Holy Spirit gave David these words and the Lord wants to hear these words sung back to him. So it's not up to us to try to explain why we shouldn't pray this way or why we shouldn't sing this way. It is up to us to look carefully at these words and to understand when and how it is appropriate to pray and sing this way. And furthermore, how doing this makes us a people of blessing, how this makes us a people of peace and mercy. God isn't inconsistent. God doesn't contradict himself. He tells us your mouths are to be springs of peace and gentleness and mercy. That's paraphrasing James there. Your mouth is to be a spring of mercy. And he tells us to love our enemies. And he tells us to sing the Psalms. And, and there's no contradiction there. That's entirely consistent. So let's search the matter out by walking through Psalm 109, beginning with verse 1. I didn't read this earlier. I got right to the heart of the matter uh, when I read the text. But let's, let's go back to the beginning. And let's hear David speak in the first few verses. We read, <clears throat> Do not keep silent, O God of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus, they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. This first section is vital because we hear David state his case before he makes his request to God. He tells us who he is, and then he identifies the character of his enemies. David says, I've been accused by my enemies, but I'm innocent of their charges. My hands are clean. 
I've done good to my enemies, in fact. I have loved them, but they have repaid my love with evil. Now, if you come to the Lord and say, Lord, my hands are clean, I'm innocent. Well, you better be innocent, right? (laughs) Uh, You can't fool the Lord, obviously. And such a bold statement can only be made by one who stands holy before the Lord. Now, notice David says, I am innocent of their charges. I'm innocent of the things they're accusing me of. He doesn't say, I am sinless. Right? That's not what he's saying. It's not not saying the same thing. He's not saying, I'm perfect and never sin, right? He's saying, no, I am innocent of the charges they're bringing against me. He, He says, the things they're saying about me aren't true, and I've done good by them. I have loved them. My hands are clean. And as I sin, I deal with my sin. My heart is right before you, God. So here at the first part of the psalm, we see some prerequisites for this kind of prayer. If we're going to pray this way, there are some some things that have to be true first. And these prerequisites are pretty rigorous. Only the innocent can pray like David does here. Remember the Apostle Peter wrote about enduring persecution in in the name of Jesus. Peter wrote, If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's manners. I always love how he stacks busybody alongside murderer and thief and evildoer. That's always uh, kind of funny to me. Uh, We always think, oh, they're just, you know, them, that busybody who always messes in other people's business. That's just them. But actually, it's pretty heinous. Um, murderer, thief, evildoer, busybody. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or as a busybody. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So if you're being accused of actual evil, you, you don't get to say that you're persecuted. <laughs> if, if you are being punished for being a murderer or a thief, you don't say, oh, I'm being, I'm being so persecuted for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's not how it works. And that's what Peter says. You don't get to offer up imprecatory prayers for those who are executing justice. So if you have been caught speeding 37 miles over the speed limit, you don't get to pray imprecatory prayers against the state trooper who wrote you the ticket. That's not how it works. Only those who are suffering as Christians, who are innocent, who have done nothing but obey the Lord and love their enemies, only they have the privilege of praying like this. There's no room for hypocrisy here. And before we call down heaven's judgment on our enemies, we have to be sure that what we're praying against, the sin that we're asking to be judged, is not the same sin that's found in us. Because wouldn't that be disastrous? Wouldn't that be really scary? If you're offended, by the way, if you're offended by lewd and crass and perverse politicians, and you should be, but if you're offended by lewd and crass and perverse politicians, but you watch Game of Thrones, and you read Fifty Shades of Grey, and you watch body movies, and you watch naked people on the internet, you're a hypocrite. Your public outrage over something somebody says is hypocrisy of the highest order. Your behavior is offensive to God, just as offensive, if not more than their behavior. So so our hands are just as dirty. See, imprecatory prayers 
are an important part of Christian worship and devotion because they lead us to check our own guilt and they lead us to repent. Those who seek God's wrath on the guilty must themselves be innocent. In addition to declaring his innocence in the first section, David goes on to identify his enemies. David says, I'm innocent, my enemies are not. Now, David here is not praying against all Gentiles. David here is not praying against all unbelievers. David is not saying, uh, God, I want you to curse all ignorant people or all heathens. The, the heathens and the ignorant who are at peace with David are not the subject of this psalm. He prays these prayers against enemies who persistently, relentlessly conspire against him. Now, David doesn't say who he is talking about specifically here. We know that David was intensely persecuted by Saul. So Saul could be the subject. And he prays in a handful of other psalms that, that the Lord would frustrate Saul's efforts to kill him. But, but in other places, David prays imprecatory prayers against apostate Israelites who persecute the Lord's anointed. Just, just as Paul would curse the Judaizers, just as Jesus pronounces woes against the scribes and Pharisees. But in every case, the targets are pretty narrowly focused. The enemies are well-defined. These prayers aren't like voodoo curses that you just lob at everybody you don't like. You know, it's not like, it's not like you just mutter these imprecations against anybody who gets in your way or steals your parking space or anybody who inconveniences you. Remember last week how Jesus rebuked the apostles for wanting to call down fire from heaven against the Samaritans? Remember we read that? What, why did Jesus rebuke them? Because those people were not at war with them. They were just being generally inhospitable. They, they, weren't, they, were, they, they were just disinterested in what Jesus was doing. And so Jesus says, no, we're not going to call down fire from heaven on these people. These, these people are not actively working to destroy us. They're just disinterested. And so Jesus refuses to judge them. You see, these prayers are by the innocent and by the righteous asking God to avenge them against their enemies who are persecuting them for being righteous. The only provocation for the harsh treatment they're receiving is their obedience to the Lord. They are being persecuted for righteousness sake. These prayers are in response to men who make false accusations and who bring unjust judgments against the Lord's anointed. Men like Saul, men like Judas. And by the way, Peter is later going to quote this very psalm when they try to figure out what they need to do in the aftermath of Judas's betrayal and, and departure. So, so these these. These prayers are against those who bring false accusations against the anointed, like the Judaizers, like the Pharisees, like the tyrants who order the saints to be put to death. And ultimately, these prayers are focused toward the one who is behind all the accusation, the accuser, Satan. The hope in prayer, the ultimate hope in prayer, is that in the grand scheme of things, that the accuser, Satan, would be crushed and be put out of our misery. Now then, we, we have the context for the actual requests uh, that, are, that are made. We, we've set the context. Now, now let's read the requests that he makes. And I, I read just part of this. I want to read the whole thing and just, just kind of feel blow after blow. 
of what David asked for God to do to his accuser. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from the desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. And in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before Yahweh and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before Yahweh, that he may be uh, cut off the memory of them from the earth, because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with a garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him and for a belt with which he girds himself continually. Let this be Yahweh's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. So he asks that a wicked man be set over his accuser as a judge and that he be wrongly accused himself by an adversary. Let let him get a taste of what this is like and then let a guilty verdict be leveled. And then when he prays, may even his prayer be seen as sin. Now, David didn't make that up to be mean, right? The, The Bible repeatedly says that all the religious acts of the wicked are an abomination to God. Uh, the, the wicked don't please God just because they do something that's kind of sentimental and kind of religious, right? Proverbs 28 says this, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. If you don't listen to God's law, your prayer is an abomination to God. And that's what David is saying here. He, he's not making things up to be mean. He goes on to pray that God would shorten his enemy's life, that his days would be few, that another would take his office. Again, that's the part that Peter quotes regarding Judas. There's a great deal of blunt language here, but one of the most difficult perhaps for us to grasp is that David focuses the consequences of the man's sin not only on himself, but on his family. Now, again, David isn't making up cruel ideas in his anger. God said that the sins of the fathers would be visited on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate God. God also said, if you afflict any widow or orphan, my anger will be kindled and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. That's what God says. If you afflict the widow or the orphan, Proverbs 17 says, he who returns evil for good, which is precisely what is going on in this situation. He who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Not just the individual will suffer, but his whole house. And we see in the destruction of the idolatrous Canaanites, those who didn't submit to Yahweh, they were all destroyed. The whole house. God destroyed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, along with their wives and their children for their rebellious uh, acts. And Achan's whole house was destroyed as well. 
It's a biblical principle that a man's sins not only have terrible consequences for himself, they also destroy his family. David then is is only asking God to do what God has already done in other similar situations. He prays for his enemy's financial ruin and his family's extinction. Here, Here is simply a litany of petitions based on the way that the enemy has treated other people. David requests that that man be treated the same way that he has treated others. So David is not asking for revenge. Only that the Lord returns to the wicked what they've given to others, to give them what they deserve. The wicked love to curse, let them be cursed. They withhold blessing, so withhold blessing from them. In the next small section, David begs for relief. Pick up in verse 21. But you, O God the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake. Because your mercy is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Yahweh my God. O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Yahweh, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. He's asking the Lord to deal with his accusers because he's asking for a break. He's asking for a respite from the persecution and the pursuit. Make the false accusations stop. He prays. Make the lies stop. He prays. Give me peace and sanity. These men have dealt with me cruelly, but I depend upon your mercy, O Lord, to deliver me. See, even in this request that he makes for God to judge his enemy, it's laced with love for his enemy. And this is why these prayers are in no way inconsistent with our duty to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. It's not inconsistent. David is not lashing out in revenge. He he isn't standing toe-to-toe and trading barbs like school ground kids, you know, playground kids. Uh -uh, Uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. You know, he's, he's not giving that back and forth. He isn't going around splending slander about them. He won't even name them here, by the way. I think that's pretty profound, that he doesn't even name them. He's taking his petition to the Lord. The best thing that can happen to an enemy of the gospel is that the Lord would stop them dead in their tracks, that he would bring some great calamity on them so that they would realize what they're doing, that 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 calamity would be evidence of God's grace to them by asking God to deal with them and by not avenging his own cause, David is loving his enemy. And here he prays that they would see the light. Do you see it? Verse 28, he says, let them be ashamed. Lord, give them eyes to see what they're doing. Perhaps they'll beg for forgiveness. Verse 29, he says, let them be clothed with shame. Let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. The greater hope is that they'll cover themselves with disgrace and take on the posture of repentance and turn from their evil. At the end, David's prayer is, I'd far rather gain a brother if that's at all possible. 
If you would turn their heart, Lord, by, by showing them the enormity of their wickedness, if you would turn their heart, I would gain a brother. These aren't, these aren't just words. I'm not reading into the text. This is exactly how David responded to Saul, remember? David refused to lash back at Saul personally. David never went on the offensive against Saul. He left it all for God to sort out, even in the face of terrible persecution and awful accusation. And even after Saul died, David still wept for Saul and he defended his honor and he protected his family. David proved by his own example how you can love your enemy with your actions and your words. And at the same time, pray to God that he would stop their wickedness. David said in the beginning of this psalm, I loved them. And they responded to me with false accusation. Here he proves, I still love them. Even after all that they've done, even after all that they've said, I still love them. You see, the purpose of this prayer is to get them to stop and see their condition. And if they won't repent, if they won't stop, well, then just Lord, destroy them. Because that's what they're getting anyway. Help them see what they're doing and to repent of their wickedness. That is my prayer. In the last part, David vows to praise the Lord. Verse 30, we'll we'll close, uh, wrap up the psalm here. Verse 30, I will greatly praise Yahweh with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. So David doesn't take this request to a bully. David doesn't go to a bodyguard or a tough guy. He doesn't find some guy named Vinny with like no neck to like sort this all out. He doesn't do that. He doesn't engage in character assassination. He addresses these complaints to the only one who could do anything about them. He knows that the Lord will stand by his side and save him from those who condemn him. So so now what have we picked up? And what have we learned as we read through this psalm? How do we further answer those objections that I read at the beginning? That that these psalms really aren't appropriate today, and we probably shouldn't have written them, or, or David shouldn't have written them in the first place, and we shouldn't have them canonized, and we shouldn't read them or use them in worship. Just three very quick thoughts about this. First of all, it's really easy for us, those of us who've never been persecuted for righteousness' sake, It's very easy for us to critique the thoughts and prayers of someone who's right in the middle of it. Unless you have dealt with a person who is irrational in their hatred of everything holy, a person who will lie to your face and lie on top of that, a person whose accusations have no substance or basis, who pursues the destruction of your family, who wants your children, your wife to starve and suffer, even after you have loved and served him, If you've not been in that position, if you haven't dealt with that kind of accuser that David is dealing with, you can't really say what you might ask the Lord to do to that person. It's awfully easy to sit in a comfortable air-conditioned office and write commentaries and make self-righteous judgments about things like that. It's much better, however, to sing these psalms. If not for ourselves, then we sing them on the behalf of the persecuted church who cannot sing them now. We sing these on behalf of people around the world who are being oppressed, whose houses are being plundered, whose children and wives are suffering under tyrants and oppressors. We sing these psalms on their behalf and saying, oh Lord, judge their oppressors. Judge those tyrants. Lord, make it stop. 
Protect your anointed. Guard your flock. Keep the wild boar out of the vineyard. That's That's why we pray these things. Because this is a reality for our brothers and sisters around the world. And God hears our prayers for those who are suffering at the hands of dictators and tyrants and idolaters. Their houses are being plundered and we want the Lord to stop it. And we ask him to stop it by praying and singing these psalms. Secondly, you can also see very clearly that, that these things are not hastily written angry notes scribbled out in the heat of the moment. You know, this is carefully penned Holy Spirit-inspired poetry. This is not an explosion of rage that we're witnessing in these verses. The Lord is slow to anger, and David here is slow to anger. He's been patient, but now he's had it, and he's got to express these things to God. Now, finally, thirdly, while David's prayer is severe, I want you to notice this and really, really focus in on this. David's prayer is severe, but his actions toward his enemies are gracious and kind. Just suppose that Saul was the subject of this psalm. Saul deserved everything that David asked for here and more, and he received much of it. But David never lifted his hand against Saul. He continued to serve Saul. David prayed fiercely, but acted lovingly. And that's not inconsistent. And that's not hypocritical. Because the prayer itself is gracious. It's tough grace, but it's grace nonetheless. What is inconsistent, what is hypocritical, is the way that we try to deal with our enemies. We try to churn up these human feelings of love and forgiveness, but it doesn't work. We, we can't make ourselves really love them. The best we can do is kind of suppress our feelings of anger and hostility. And we kind of put on a painful looking grin. I think I can get through this. What David does when he prays this way is he admits his feelings and he admits his desires toward his enemies, which by the way, I hope I showed, his desire toward his his enemies are 100% in agreement with the way God views his enemies, right? There's no disagreement in the way that David prays and God acts. These are 100% in agreement with God's character and his word. So David admits his feelings toward his enemies and then he's relieved of his hostility and he leaves the outcome to God. Vengeance is the Lord's. So by giving up the desire for vengeance, now he is free to love and to forgive in a way that he couldn't do all on his own. Maybe one of the problems we have with psalms like this is the confrontational approach they take to sin and wickedness. There's an uncanny courage here that makes us uncomfortable because we see how vehemently the Lord and his people oppose the wicked. You, we, we see how seriously wickedness is and how God views it. If you're going to live your own way, if you're going to mock God's law, if you're going to hurt God's people, this is what you have coming. This is your fate. The psalmist takes sin and the very real consequences of sin much more seriously than we do. Singing these words reminds us how the godly should respond to sin. To be soft on sin is to give it time to grow. To be soft on sin is is to give it room to be comfortable. To be hard on sin is to kill it at its roots. You can't sing psalms like this 
and put up with all kinds of nonsense and rebellion and wickedness. Something has to give. If you're trying to sing psalms like this and, and tolerate stupidity and wickedness and idolatry, something has to give. And you know what ordinarily gives in the evangelical church? The Psalms, right? The Psalms go, because we've got to have our goofiness. We've got to have our idolatries. We've got to have our stupidity. You know, get rid of the stupidity. Keep, keep the Psalms. What needs to go is the tolerance of sin. And so Jesus tells us to rejoice in persecution. Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Paul says, don't take vengeance. Bless and curse not. James condemns the hypocrite who has both blessing and cursing in his mouth. And the scriptures say, sing the Psalms. These are not in disagreement. So when we're persecuted, we take it as an honor. By the way, this is, David is not cursing his enemy, right? He's asking God to. That's an important distinction, right? David is not cursing his enemy. He's asking God to deal with his enemy. And so when we're persecuted, we take it as an honor. We don't curse our enemies. We don't plot revenge. We make sure our own hands are clean and we pray. We pray that the persecution ceases, that the Lord would judge all sin. And then in the process of the Lord judging our enemies, that they would be converted, that they would be dashed against the rock who is Christ, that they would be killed and resurrected to new life just as we have been. Then we can move forward doing good to our enemies because we know that the Lord will deal with them with a perfect justice. God will answer our prayers and be our defender. Singing psalms like this, singing all of the psalms, creates a certain kind of Christian, the kind of Christian that makes all the right people nervous. <laughs> it's, the psalms put iron in your blood, the Psalms put steel in your spine. The Psalms help you go on offense against Satan and his hosts, to go on offense against, against tyrants. The Psalm makes you the kind of people who oppose wicked tyrants, and they put you on offense against your own sin. So don't shrink back, don't quail and fear, don't cringe. When you read the language in the Psalms, don't do that. Rather, embrace the Psalms, all of them. They are God's holy inspired hymns. He wants to hear them. He loves to hear all of them. He wrote them. He likes to hear them. Don't cringe. Embrace them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your good word and we give you thanks for all of it. And so we don't act as judges and critics over it. We submit ourselves to its wisdom and to its guidance. So help us to understand it rightly. Help us to receive it and correct us where we're in error. We pray that you would always guide us by your Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom and discretion and discernment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.